This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. There's been a lot of strong reactions out there in the community since the Fair Work Commission handed down its ruling last week on cutting Sunday and public holiday penalty rates. For unions and many employed in the hospitality and retail sector, the cuts have been criticised for hitting those in traditionally low-paid jobs the hardest, while employer groups claim that the ruling will actually result in more jobs and greater economic prosperity across the board. The decisions not only reopened divisions along class lines, but also raised deeper questions about how we, as a society, value weekends and our leisure time. To talk about these issues and what the ruling might mean, we have Dr Dina Bowman on the line. She's the Principal Fellow at Work and Economic Security at Brotherhood of St Lawrence and an Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Thanks very much for being, being with us today, Dina. That's, that's fine. Hi, hi Dylan, and, and hi, Kalia. And so I guess in one sense we could sort of see this coming. The Productivity Commission recommended back in 2015 that Sunday penalty rates be brought in line with Saturday, and we haven't quite seen that with the Fair Work Commission's ruling last week, but what's your response to it? Were you at all surprised by uh, what they have um, come out with? Well, I think it is very concerning that uh, it hits low-paid workers the the most. Um, We know that uh, people in these industries uh, tend to be... Most of them uh, are women and young people, particularly in the fast food uh, area. Uh, Mainly uh, level one employees are are being um, uh, uh, affected by this... um, proposed cut. So we definitely, I think, concerned around the impacts on low-paid people, women and young men and women who will be affected. Because Sundays can, the penalty rates that uh, people earn, the extra money that people earn on Sundays can make all the difference between making do and not making do financially. And so people, when things change, people do get caught out. And I wonder whether you expected this uh, decision, Dina? Well, I think it was unexpected. Uh, I, I believe that they are discussing transition arrangements so people won't be uh, immediately impacted, but these have not yet been uh, de- described in detail or, or discussed. So I think there is a concern and it adds to the general level of insecurity um, and feeling of um, precarity that, that people who are low paid feel. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I mean, we heard from the organisation representing retail businesses that uh, employees are always wanting more hours and asking for more hours and now their members can give them more hours. But I think the flip side is that there's a great concern that uh, people end up with the same amount in their pay packet and just have to work more hours for it. Well, that's the thing. It's a trade-off between t- time and, and pay. And lots of people, young people, students, they already experience tremendous pressure um, in terms of trying to balance their work, study and um, personal lives. Uh, they, uh, through our research, we know that people talk about that, that incredible pressure of missing out on, on family, you know, children's birthday parties, you know, young cousins' parties, those family get-togethers. But it can be worth it if they're making enough money. Um, and for, for poor, for young people from poorer families, uh, it's not like they can fall back on their families. Indeed, often they are uh, contributing to their families through their work um, and to certainly supporting themselves. So it is that trade-off between time and, and income, and, and that's why we have the penalty rates. 
And from my reading of the report, Dina, the main justification that the Fair Work Commission um, has kind of put out for the, uh, recommending the, the cuts to Sunday and public holiday penalty rates is that Sundays are no longer viewed, I guess, quite as sacred as they once were, yet they're still viewed as, um, you know, more important for our leisure time and, and family time than Saturdays. Do you think we have, as a society, changed our, our view and the premium that we place on Sundays? Well, I think Sunday is a very important day. Um, obviously, not everyone's religious and not everyone follows the same religion. Uh, but Sunday is an important day where people can get together um, and have that family time and also community activities. And I think it is still recognised as a special day, different from other days of the week. And it's quite a complex decision. The, the cuts aren't the same across the board. Um, full-time and part-time workers in retail are being treated differently to hospitality That's and right. fast food for instance. So how much um, education do you think is going to be needed to make sure that people get the right rate going forward? Well, well, that would be a concern too um, because it is quite complex. I think the decision runs to over 500 pages, the full um, report. So, uh, And it is complex, as you say, between full-time, part-time, the various awards um, for fast food, level one uh, employees are being affected others aren't so it is quite complex and yes I think that's a, a, a important will be important to make sure that people do um, have correct information about what the changes might be and this is I think particularly important for young people who often um, are not aware of their rights um, and um, accordingly can be open to um, to you know, perhaps being um, exploited and we're hearing um, from from uh, political parties, from the Greens and the ALP, that this decision from the independent umpire has is unprecedented. In that wages have just been cut. There hasn't been any trade offs. Uh, workers aren't getting a, a higher base rate in order to compensate or anything like that. Are, are you seeing this as an unprecedented decision as well, Dina? It certainly seems that way, yes, and um, it certainly seems that unusual that the uh, that this decision just made a cut or proposing a cut rather than having some kind of trade-off. And how much evidence is there that this will actually grow employment opportunities and, and increase the, the prosperity of you know, businesses which will eventually come back into the economy? Because that's some of the main arguments coming out from employer groups and the like, that this decision will have a greater net benefit. Do you see any justification or evidence to support that? Well, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that lowering, lowering wages will increase employment. Um, and as I said, even if uh, people are earning... Um, if, if there were to be more jobs, people would not be earning the same income. And so the, if the overall aim is to enable people's economic security, then uh, this, this wouldn't be fulfilled. Uh, so there is a concern about um, income as, as well as employment. The other thing, I think, is the, uh, the types of um, employers. Often they're small employers in these sectors, and uh, so they may not have the capacity to take on um, permanent um, employees, and we—I mean—we already know that low, you know, there's low wage growth across Australia. The cost of living, particularly around housing, is high and and growing. And I wonder if this will set a precedent for future EBA negotiations. Is this something that that the Brotherhood is is concerned about? 
Well, that would be a concern. We know that we're experiencing uh, record low growth. We know that um, there's rising underemployment um, and there is growth in part-time work, which is why there is the concern about economic security. Can people make enough um, to to live um, a decent life um, if they're only getting part-time work um, and not getting the hours they want? We know that there's increasing household debt, um, and this is linked to housing affordability issues and the rising cost of living. So we know that these are these are concerns. And indeed, the decision um, does uh, acknowledge that um, many of the employees potentially affected earn just enough to cover weekly living expenses and that saving money is difficult and unexpected um, expenses produce considerable financial distress. Uh, we know that through our research with people who are just making do, that often they have no savings, they have, uh, they're, they're really just going from week to week or fortnight to fortnight. And so cuts, which could be uh, from 5 to $10 an hour, um, really will make a difference to people's um, income from week to week. And we've seen here in Australia previously that industrial relations is incredibly fraught political terrain. Um, And I think both major parties have been a little bit cautious about how they've responded uh, to the Fair Work Commission's ruling, not sort of outright supporting or or going against it, but pointing the finger at each other for just who was responsible. Um, Do you see this being a big uh, issue in any upcoming election? Well, I think the concerns around economic security, how people can um, live decent lives, will be front and centre. You can see issues like uh, housing affordability um, are growing, and I think they've been described as a barbecue stopper. Um, These are issues that are affecting people more and more, and so I should imagine that they will be, um, you know, central issues. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, the response that I'm hearing um, in my, my own sort of family, I suppose, but also more broadly, uh, talkback radio and, res- and responses in other various media online, uh, people are sceptical about the benefits um, flowing on to them through these cuts. But w- one other thing that's come out is that many workers are saying they never got the penalty rates in the first place, so the cut's actually not going to impact on them because they were never receiving that. Is this something that you're aware of as well, Dina? Well, we do know that, um, as I said, about young people who may may not um, be aware of their rights at work. We know that um, uh, uh, migrants, for example, may not be aware of their rights at work. And so this can lead to people not being paid correctly. Um, so this is an, an issue. And we, we know people, particularly migrants, perhaps new arrivals, who um, are not fully um, aware of what the, the rules are, um, can be open to to not being paid correctly. And what now? I mean, what's what's the the way forward? Do you think? Well, I mean, there's been proposals that the, there's um, going to be um, legislation introduced, but um, uh, who knows? Uh, I, I don't know. I think that our focus is on economic security and um, trying to to ensure that people um, can live decent lives and um, contribute to the, and participate in the in the community. I think there'll be uh, many of us watching closely to see if there is a spike in employment and to see these new positions being generated for, for young people and, and people on uh, lower incomes. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that we'll get you back when that, that data comes in. <laughs> we'll see if it yeah. does. <laughs> 
Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Dina Bowman, she's a Principal Fellow, Work and Economic Security at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence and also she's with the University of Melbourne as an Honorary Senior Research Fellow and uh, speaking there about the Sunday penalty rate cuts for uh, sort of three main classes of workers, um, retail, fast food and hospitality and also pharmacy workers there that um, was delivered last Thursday from the Independent Umpire, the uh, Fair Work Commission. So, yeah, let's see. We'll be hearing more about that, I'd say. I think on the news tonight. Mm. We love to talk about how education is changing and uh, we're going to speak this morning to uh, a a youth lawyer who is part of a kind of expanding legal service to uh, primary and also mainly secondary schools. There's now at least three schools in Melbourne's West with lawyers providing free legal services to students and they're based on the school campus. Um, this service started as an Australia First trial about three years ago at the Grange Peter 12 College and now is also running at Laverton uh, and Angus Woodward is one of the youth lawyers running a youth program there and he's also at the Wyndham Community Education Centre and uh, it's really great to have you in Angus because uh, this seems different. It's a different way to provide legal services. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, yeah, it is a different model. Um, it's it's pretty new and it's coming off the back of uh, the success of my colleague, Vinny, who's in the Grange. He's been there, as you say, for a few years, uh, doing some really good work there. And we're trying to expand it um, coming off the back of his success, I guess. Yeah, and you're part of a, a legal service um, called West Justice. So you, I suppose we're used to that community-based legal model providing services to um, families and so forth. But actually being in the school, how does it make it different? How does it change the way you work? Uh, so I suppose, it's a, I mean, I'm, uh, apart from not just being behind a, a desk, which makes it quite different. So I'm, I'm obviously during an average week going out to, to the two schools that I work at. One's uh, in, in just across the road, so that's not too far, and then Laverton's not too far either. So uh, it, apart from moving around a fair bit, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's a completely different style of working, I guess. You have to switch off your kind of traditional legal cap uh, and think about interacting with, with young people um, and providing uh, a service to them. Um, which is relevant and helpful. And so what was the idea behind having lawyers based in schools? Was there was there a gap there that sort of needed to be filled? Yeah, look, uh, I think so. I think we've, we identified that one of the problems with young people accessing legal advice is that often it's um, at the last minute, uh, it's, it's going to court, uh, which is, you know, it's far less than ideal the first time they see a lawyer's at court. Um, not to take away from the duty lawyer services, they obviously do a great job, but unfortunately they've got, um, you know, time constraints uh, and it's, it's hard for them to interact with a young person who, you know, might be disengaged, um, might have a whole range of issues happening for them and, and the first time they see a lawyer is at court and the whole thing can be pretty stressful, obviously, certainly for a young person. So we, I guess we identified that um, we need to try and bridge that gap a little bit uh, and try and engage with them earlier uh, so that the first time they see a lawyer is not when it's um, at the cr- a critical point. So when do they see you? What do you what do you do on campus? Uh, so it's it's just like any normal school day, I suppose. I'm part of the wellbeing team. Um, that's how the model's been set up. Uh, so I, so I go in. Um, I've got my own little office. Uh, I suppose I'm talking about Wyndham, the community education centre, which is an alternative school. That's a smaller school. So I have a little office in there, and it's they're relatively flexible and. Um, kind of relaxed uh, environment there. So I would just wander in like any other teacher, I suppose, and um, say good day to the kids and they know I'm there and um, either I'll be running a, 
uh, you know, throughout the day I might run a legal education class on a particular topic, whether it's crime or employment um, or a, a, you know, a range of topics, and, and they also know that I'm there just to drop in and have a chat if um, they've got any legal issues. And often there'll be kids that I, I know I'm helping with a particular matter and I'll try and kind of pull them in and, and, uh, and sort of give them an update or kind of get some more instructions from them about their matter, um, which obviously in a confidential way... Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of the general model of how it works. But it's pretty flexible. And and so, what sorts of issues do you deal with? Because I'd imagine, um, you know, different students would have a range of different questions around the legal system. Whether it's, um, you know, they got they got a fine on the way to school one day, or yeah. facing, you know, quite serious um, things at home or something like that. Do you have a real range of issues that you deal with? Yeah, it is a range. Uh, I'm seeing a, a bit of a trend in the type of matters I'm seeing. Certainly, at the Wyndham School, there is a number of um, kids that are, I suppose, getting into into trouble with with police in the lower it's generally lower lower level type stuff but for a young person um you know the first first offense can be a bit daunting and a bit scary so there is some criminal stuff um but it, it as you say it, it does really vary there's certainly a lot of fine stuff so young people um yeah just getting not having concession cards on them getting fined for that and, and trying to kind of yeah uh, help them with those those sort of matters but there's um obviously some family violence type stuff that happens i know vinnie's done a lot of work uh with that stuff certainly around at least around education and initial advice uh but there's also some employment matters that i've had which have been pretty interesting um with young people just either getting underpaid or unfairly dismissed from work um so yeah it it really does does vary quite a bit and how does it roll then i mean if someone comes in and they think i'm being underpaid or they cash in hand or whatever and they what do they do do they make an appointment with you or do they kind of see you in the in the corridor or yeah so i suppose suppose employment stuff isn't generally something that they'll come in and go hey I want to talk about my my work so sometimes it comes out of an, off the back of an education of a, of a workshop that I run around it they, they realize oh okay maybe I am getting underpaid or um, you know maybe I'm tolerating some treatment from my boss that I perhaps don't have to tolerate um, and then they'll come and see me off the back of that but usually um, with other matters, so criminal stuff, if you know they've got often they've got a court date coming up, or there's fines hanging over their head, so they are more inclined to drop in, and because um, it's kind of more pressing, I suppose, than some of the employment stuff. At least that's how it feels for them, I think. And you said you're part of the wellbeing team, so do you get referrals also from from counsellors or the other um, members of the team in the school? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's sort of how it's set up to work, um, so that we're not just coming in and um, sort of changing the mould too much or um, creating too much disruption the idea is that the wellbeing team um, they're already linked in with the kids they're already providing a service to them um, and aware of their surrounding circumstances they'll you know the kids will often be if they've got a relationship already with that kid they might just divulge something to them and they'll say oh okay look that might be something that angus uh, can help you with do you want to go and see him and you know the idea is that over time and it's it's developed already that the kids feel comfortable with me and they they might come straight to me uh but certainly initially that's that was the idea is to to link them in through the wellbeing team who have already got those relationships with the kids is there a precedence for this sort of model anywhere else in the world or because i'd never heard of lawyers being placed yeah it's a good question I'm not sure I'm the, I'm the best person to ask for, about it, but I think uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, the, the project that Vinnie, that was developed with Vinnie was sort of the first one, certainly at least in Australia. There may have been similar type models uh, um, internationally, I'm not, I'm, none that I'm aware of, uh, but it's, I mean, he's been terrific there and he's had a lot of success and got a, it's got a fair bit of exposure and thankfully that's meant that um, there's been a, a number of other organisations that have 
have jumped on board and schools that have shown interest and um, and other you know other community legal centres across the state and and um, interstate that are adopting the model. I wonder about the parent community because I know when the state government announced that we're going to get doctors in schools or they're going to trial that at least. I mean we've had nurses forever, mm. uh, but some parents were like, hang on, I want to know when my child is seeing mm. someone like a doctor. Do you get that attitude about the legal service as well? I, I haven't come across it too much. I must say I haven't had too much interaction with parents. I think because Vinny's uh, based in his particular school full-time and he's been there for a, lo- a longer period of time, he does um, do a lot more work with parents. So, I mean, from what he's said and, and the limited interaction I've had with parents, sometimes there's a bit of... Um, initial hesitation and and there's concern oh you know why does the school need a lawyer um uh, but i suppose we try to lay that concern that it's not it's not necessarily that it's not it's not necessarily the case that we're there to um you know fix a, a, a endemic problem at a particular school um but it's more look we're here for these kids that are you know these are these are schools that have kids from diverse backgrounds and often disadvantaged backgrounds and it's just acknowledging that that um you know they're not young people aren't naturally going to go and see a lawyer unless they really have to and unfortunately that means that some of the legal issues they have don't come out because they're not aware of it and they're not aware of their rights um so it's just trying to make it a bit more accessible for them and, and when we kind of explain that to parents they they seem to get it i think and then, and then when they meet us and and kind of realize that you know hopefully we're not too different to the rest of the well-being <laughs> team and other staff they yeah they, they kind of i was going to ask that does it take a particular kind of of lawyer to do this job i mean do you you know do you need to be young do you need to kind of have a a kind of way of talking and walking and looking that makes makes you approachable to young people yeah maybe maybe i think um i have i had some youth work background i've done a fair bit of work with young people so that certainly helps uh i I think being younger and approachable um helps as well Uh, i suppose the typical lawyer of the older man in his suit that can be a little bit intimidating that image at least for a young person so or business suit and heels or yeah exactly yeah exactly um um that it's certainly um well i I only say that because traditionally probably the the perception about a, a lawyer is a male um unfortunately that's not the case and uh there's heaps of women doing um great work obviously and uh we haven't got a female lawyer on board, but I'm sure a young female would do a t- terrific job. I think I think being um, being young helps, uh, being approachable, and just being able to say, um, you know, they say, oh, you play basketball, or you, um, you know, Vinny rides a motorbike. Um, oh, that's pretty cool, and um, yeah, it just bridges that gap straight away, um, makes them more likely to talk about what can often be pretty personal stuff. And how's it been working in a school and with other teachers? Has has it been sort of relatively easy to embed legal training in your role within the broader school curriculum? Yeah, so the, the the school that I've done most of my work at so far, the community school is an alternative school and the teachers are, are terrific. They're all really on board. Um, the, the model's quite flexible, so it's been quite easy to slot in to, to do some legal education. Um, and they they all... I mean, they're getting these questions from kids on a regular basis that are dealing with legal issues. Um, and, and often they, they've, you know, learnt a lot themselves just from having to try and help them out. So a lot of the time they're... Um, you know they're they're really keen for us to add that little bit of extra expertise um, and and they're really interested in learning as well because it's something that they get approached about by the young people all the time so when they're in a position to perhaps give a little bit more of a practical advice to the kids having seen what we say um, yeah they're they're really on board and they're um, really keen. And, And you're talking a lot about rights here and are you seeing an improvement in understanding in the schools that you're working so that they know their rights like if they ask for id on a 
train or, or whatever it is that they know what to do in those circumstances? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's, it's still quite early days in the schools I'm in um, and I haven't... Uh, the legal education stuff's still sort of ticking along, but I know Vinny's done a lot of work uh, in that sort of um, sphere and um, I've done some work outside in, with different programs in schools as well, providing legal education. And um, I think, look, a, a lot of the time they, they might not necessarily walk away from a legal education class and go, oh, I'm going to go and do this and I'm going to uh, make a complaint um, to the Public Transport Ombudsman or I'm going to go and um, take my employer to the Fair Work Commission. Um, but at least they know and that in itself can be pretty powerful um, and they, they, they're in a position when it, if it does come up again to go, oh, actually, I don't think I have to tolerate that um, yeah. or, you know, I'd, I'd like your details so I can, can make a complaint about that. So mm. would you accompany a student to court if that was required? Yeah, so it's, it's happened a few times um, and if it, it depends on the matter and, um, you know, I'm not an ex- expert criminal lawyer but I, I've got some experience in the, in the lower level stuff so if I think I can add value um, and, and support them through it, by all means, I've, I'll take them along uh, and I'll represent them or, um, you know, negotiate kind of a settlement prior to court uh, and, and that's, I, I can add some value there because I have that time with them and I'm linked in with the school so I can help them, say, if it's a criminal matter, um, get some really relevant character references from their, their teachers to say that they're engaged um, and to say that they're, you know, this was out of character for them. Uh, so sometimes, certainly if I think I can add value and it's not over my head in terms of experience, yeah, um, yeah I, can, uh, I can go along to it must be a great thing, even in a non-practical sense, to have, um, even if it's relatively low legal level legal training in schools, because I know through my high school I didn't really encounter legal training at all unless you wanted to take legal studies and take a class specifically in that subject. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think legal studies is uh, yeah, obviously quite theory-based um, and I've already had some interest from teachers to, to say, look, I would, you know, I like the idea of making it a little bit more practical so that um, they're not just learning, oh, if you commit a crime, these are the specific elements of the crime it's well you know if you actually commit this crime this is what what, this is the process of going to court and this is the process of getting charged and interviewed and what should you say in your interview and um yeah i think there's a level of practicality about the workshops that that we can provide um that can yeah can make it a little bit more interesting and less theory-based sometimes i guess so angus you're a youth lawyer so does that mean that you have a sort of an age range of people that you work with and also i suppose second to that can or do ex-students have access to your services if they're not actually engaged in education on the campus can they sort of come back and engage with you yeah so that's happened a couple of times uh so my age brackets anything up to 25 um and i also provide a clinic uh, at a youth resource center once a week outside of the school lawyer project Uh, and i see you know a lot of adults um there that so that is probably mostly over 18 that come into that clinic uh, and but in terms of ex students, uh, yeah, absolutely, and, and certainly at the community school that um, they're, they're really big on keeping keeping kids engaged um, after they finish their their year twelve or their VCAL uh, year twelve equivalent. Uh, there's been a couple of situations already where the kids have come back and um, needed some advice, and and, and I'm helping them out with a number of matters. And yeah, yeah. And, and where can you imagine this going? You said that a few legal services other than than yours over at West Justice are interested in this kind of model. Can you see school-based lawyers as being just a regular thing in Australia? Do you think? 
Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think perhaps there's, yeah, there's interest um, from from a number of schools now, given the, the success and uh, certainly, as I said, most of Vinny's work um, has been really successful, and uh, I, th- I think I've made some headway as well. And uh, I think off the back of that, and certainly, uh, we've been engaging with some other community centres that are doing similar stuff now, and they seem to be having some success also. And um, so I think the interest is there, and I think the need in some schools, uh, you know, not not every school is going to need perhaps a school lawyer um, and there's perhaps not enough lawyers or enough capacity to to facilitate that but uh, yeah I I think the the, the schools that perhaps have identified that some of their kids uh, you know might be having to go to court or interacting with police or um, having kind of those issues could could really benefit from a lawyer so yeah I think I think it's um yeah it's it's exciting it's expanding yeah, watch this space. Mm, Thanks yeah. for coming into Triple R. So much. Thanks for um, We have the most amazing smelling studio at the moment, uh, full of uh, Australian bush foods. And uh, the reason being is that we're about to speak with Julie Weatherhead, who's pulled together a gorgeous book called Australian Native Food Harvest, a guide for the passionate cook and gardener. And really I see it as a, a, a continuation of a conversation we had with Bruce Pascoe the other week. Uh, he's a novelist and historian and now a gourmet bush foods personality sort of um bruce has been really trying to grow interest in australia around cultivating australian native foods including the murnong or yam daisy as it's known and uh uh, Julie's kind of really on that pathway already. She's from Peppermint Ridge Farm and she's just released this botanical cookbook and I'm not sure if that's what I should be calling it, a botanical cookbook, but anyway, that's what it kind of is. I like the sound of that. Yeah, yes, you can put that in your PR. <clears throat> Thank work. you, I will. Yeah, um, and uh, you've looked at 20 Australian native foods and how to grow and cook with them, but I'm, I mean, there's a lot more than that, isn't there? But there's Absolutely. A- that's my top 20 that I, I selected out after 20 years of research. Wow. And so, I mean, what, where did your interest start with um, a, a sort of local food? Being an environmental scientist and ecologist, I've always been passionate about native plants and about the environment and about uh, habitat, preserving it. And it was a natural progression after, um, after teaching and working with farmers, actually, through my land care work I did, trying to encourage them to plant natives, came across native foods, bush foods, became enthralled, very excited about the plants and then um, wanted to find out more and found out it was actually quite difficult to find out more. So, um, you know, Aboriginal people, of course, had a vast knowledge, but um, then a lot of the plants have been ignored and so I was very keen to push a bit further with that and see what would survive and grow around in Victoria because a lot of the focus had been on tropical and desert plants, but not much was known about, about the others. So it was a long journey, actually, I uh, started with Dr. Beth Gott back at Monash University and um, moved through sort of many, many paths. But um, very exciting journey it was with my husband Anthony at the farm. And what, uh, sorry, Dylan. What, what, why is it? Do you think that that native bush foods have been ignored for so long in Australia since colonisation? I think there's a lot of the lack of knowledge is part of it, and people are, can be suspicious or concerned that they might be be toxic. And um, there's just uh, focus perhaps on the the more exciting ones up up north, and so that it was just really let slide in because there wasn't much knowledge about which plants you could grow. So if you're trying to sort of grow the desert plants and the very tropical ones, you get uh, disappointed because they die, and so it was all a lot of those reasons I think for the well a disinterest, mm. I think. Yeah, and as you say, I mean. Plants or trees like the macadamia, for instance, is known all over the world. Mm. And maybe people don't realise it's um, grown here and it has 
pretty much always been here in Australia. Well, that's why we put in the book um, a whole chapter about our lost opportunities, missed opportunities, again, as part of our indifference, I think, from traditional Aboriginal knowledge, and we just went, mm, OK, these plants are not interesting, perhaps. And so we let the Americans take the macadamia. But what a lot of other people don't realise that the um, the French came out and saw the silver wattle and thought it smelled quite nice and said, oh, could we take take these seeds back to, to grow in France? We'd like to experiment. And, oh, yes, of course, was the answer. It's just from the bush. It's not interesting. That plant is the basis of the French perfume industry. We mm. could have had that industry. It's they distill the essence from the silver wattle, good old Victorian acacia dilbata. Who no, nobody knows that. So that's why the book was fun to research um, to look at some of those stories. And so this book includes kind of your your top twenty bush foods or, or plants that you can grow in Australia. If we can whittle it down even further, what are, what are some of your favourites to to grow and to, to cook with? So that was my research and study is what will be successful for, for gardeners because they like to, I like to promote plants that will survive and grow well. So the, the most popular, of course, is the lemon myrtle, which I've brought in there for you. It's in flower at the moment. So we've got sort of the basis of my... We've got the top 20, but if we whittle it down, we've got warrigal greens, lemon myrtle, anise myrtle, river mint, native thyme, the fin- beautiful finger limes, of course. It was a surprise that they, they grow so well. And uh, we've got a lot of herbs, native celeries and basils. Uh, there's quite a, quite a range of plants. We've even got native tamarind at the moment is flowering and fruiting, which is related to the lychee. So um, there's a lot of just such an exciting potential as a, as a cook and a gardener to have your own native kitchen food garden is my passion to get people going with that. Mm. And one that um, you, you write about is the strawberry gum, which I actually had never heard of before. I mean, I've read that book, Eucalyptus, <laughs> where yeah. they name, you know, so many different kinds of eucalypts, but this one I was not familiar with at all. No, it's probably one of the rare uh, eucalypts, and thanks for mentioning because I should have put it in my top ten list. It makes a beautiful centrepiece tree for any of the gardens if you've got a little bit of space. It only grows to eight metres in Victoria, but it is a flavour enhancer, and the oil... We actually don't have the English words to describe how it, it smells. It um, is a bit strawberry, a bit vanilla, a bit passion fruit, a bit guava. It's on its own. But whatever food you put it with, you just steep the leaves dried or, or fresh into the foods, that flavour comes out the oil. And so I make a, a, a tomato sugo baking it with the strawberry gum it just changes the flavor incredibly so last sunday at our lunch at the farm i made strawberry gum creme brulee by steeping the leaves with the hot cream and wow you know or you can make ice creams or custards or put it with berries for muffins we haven't had a failure yet it's so much fun Yum. to experiment with yeah <laughs> So you one in. Yeah, please. <laughs> Why didn't you? It's I almost know. lunchtime. <laughs> but, I mean, as you say, you've been experimenting with it, but a lot of us get our knowledge, especially around plants, from our local nursery or whatever. Are, are there uh, nurseries that have this knowledge and can pass it on to your regular everyday gardener? There's only a few um, nurseries who do supply the plants. That's why we set up a nursery at Peppermint Ridge Farm to grow the plants so that we could give it the expert advice to people and you can get hold of them. There's, I can't see the point of getting people all excited about these plants if you can't access them. So that's why we, we've got um, the supply at the farm and there's just a few other nurseries that do have that but not many and I have to say not all the nursery people do have the knowledge about the, the native plants because it's just such a, a new field. So New old 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, for example, most some of the plants are what you call dioecious, means that some are male and some are female. Illawarra plum, for example. So you've got, if you want the plums, you need a male and a female. That 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 knowledge isn't widely known. That's why I spent so much time on the research to get it right. So are some of these plants quite difficult to harvest if you don't have that that knowledge? Sure. If you just plant the, if you only got the male or the female of the of the mountain pepper is the same if you don't have both sexes you won't get Mm. the fruit and so you're going to be waiting a very very long time that's interesting because i did grow i was going to ask you about that i did grow a mountain pepper once and it had it was amazing it was so prolific and we never got one berry Mm. and this is why (laughs) but then i saw it was all on its own yeah and i did i was hiking in uh, lake mountain i think it was and i saw it everywhere and there was berries Mm -hmm. everywhere Mm -hmm. so then i'm like what you know what's going on here so that's interesting that there needs to be that level of knowledge and i wonder I mean, you do run courses and so forth, don't you? So are you getting a lot of interest in people wanting to gather this knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm running a course in, um, on March 18, actually, on growing um, the native bush foods, all the design, how, where, you, where you place them. That's very important, what, what sites they need in the garden and uh, how you prepare the soil and then sort of how you cook with them as well. So it's really just presenting that knowledge in, in a workshop followed up by a cooking school. As, as well, so um, at a later date. So it's, again, just sharing my knowledge with people. And, and what sorts of people have kind of come to you for, to expand their own interest? Is it kind of your regular person who wants to learn more about it or specialty cooks and chefs and, and that sort of thing? The great fun of it is it's everybody. Uh, such a range of people come to talk to us at the farm. That, that's our thing we enjoy the most. So there'll be cooks, there'll be chefs, there'll be passionate gardeners and um, just such a wide range of people and others who want to get into the industry as well. So we're sort of keen to set up a, a, a forum group for Victoria for um, other people who'd like to grow and, and be part of it because there is a lack of supply of many of these plants as there's... Um, overseas countries are supplying um, large amounts of these foods and we we should be doing that ourselves. Mm. We're speaking with Julie Weatherhead. She's pulled together a vast amount of knowledge uh, in a book called Australian Native Food Harvest, a guide for the passionate cook and gardener. And she's from Peppermint Ridge Farm and a lot of this knowledge she's gathered over 20 years. And who are you gathering it from? Who are you speaking to and working with, Julie? Uh, Such a wide range. Again, that was part of the pleasure of it. Anthony and I met met with so many people. As I mentioned, Dr Beth Gott from Monash was a very early supporter and... um, there was other Victorian bush food associations were going then. Um, I actually won a Rural Women's Award to go to um, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia to look into the industry. So I met a lot of growers there, um, worked with a lot of Aboriginal groups and, and people who were keen to, to see the plants promoted, um, did any courses that I could. You know, went to a really fantastic one up at Byron Bay and um, just to go there was good. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so just gathered as much knowledge as I possibly could from everybody who who would help and um, read sort of all the books and then did a lot of research into PhD studies that have been done and through the food studies for many of the universities and they've come up with some amazing results but it's all written in very scientific language so I had to translate it all which I love doing. (laughs) And and you've also helped to pull together a, a sort of a publicly accessible garden down at the the children's farm so people can you don't actually need to go into the farm it's just at the entry of the farm and I've just learned about it from you maybe tell us more Julie yes well um good good shepherd asked us to put together a um a friendship garden a um, vegetable garden at the uh, just at the front of the the um 
the children's farm, as you say, and they wanted native foods as part of it. They wanted to see what veggies they could grow there. It's quite a shaded site and there's quite a few possums, so there's a few challenges. And uh, with the idea that anybody could come in and, and plant and harvest the garden, it's had its first season, it's been really successful. Loads of food have gone to people who, who need it and um, anyone can come down there and I'd uh, really encourage people to, to pop in. Marg is there sort of working a couple of days a week and she's uh, very keen on, on visitors and, to, and sharing. And so there's a, there's a bush food section, there's native foods um, but there's ordinary vegetable sections so it's it's wonderful and you keep talking about growing the industry and growing the knowledge and sort of owning i suppose not as in um you know what i mean like i'm sort of being proud of these foods uh is that likely to happen? Can you see that industry emerging in Australia? Certainly can. It's just grown. The interest has grown by that so many people are, are pushing it. You mentioned Bruce Pascoe before, and we're part of that voice for that. We really want to um, get people more excited and interested. And being a, a teacher um, and a scientist, my idea is that if people have got the knowledge, if you pass on the correct knowledge, they'll get the confidence to actually go ahead and do it and not be, you know, be concerned. I want to see everybody with a, you know, backyard native food garden and I want to see Aboriginal communities having big industries growing these plants and um, doing you know incredibly well there's such a scope but we need to push forward and get people not to be afraid just to go for it as soon as they taste the flavors they get very excited and it's all about sustainability too is another thing I wanted to mention because by putting these plants in your garden you're getting increasing habitat for example the native current the first thing that happened as soon as it got big enough the ringtail possums moved in and built their drays there um, we have so many birds in the garden and it's due to those those plants so every time you increase habitat in your backyard as far as I'm concerned it's a great thing I also just want my backyard to smell like the studio does at the <laughs> <Yes>. moment <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> and I, I wonder also, um, you know, when sort of getting excited about these foods and about cooking them, a lot of the recipes, like there's some pizza recipes and the like, so it's a, kind of a fusion of are there, um, is there scope for more traditional recipes as well or do you think that these uh, foods will be kind of incorporated in a way in curries and, and things like that that we, I suppose, uh, we do hear very well in Australia is kind of, fuse different food traditions together that is my biggest passion perhaps because i love cooking i love eating and the joy of discovering that you can fuse these these herbs and these plants with every single type of cuisine for example we make amazing curries with them the anise myrtle you can swap for the star anise and fennel and any of those aniseedy flavors and it's just sensational the lemon myrtle is has more lemon uh, citral oil than lemons lemons have got about six percent the uh, lemon myrtle has 97 percent so it just embarks a beautiful flavour. So lemongrass, any lemons, any limes will go with the, um, the lemon myrtle. Your, your thymes and your mints will, will swap beautifully with any of the others. So you can't really make a mistake. Nothing bad will happen, <laughs> you know. And things like the strawberry gum just give you a whole new taste sensation that you never had before. So um, we, we're going to have a series of, of lunches at the farm on um, fusing it with ger traditional German cooking, uh, traditional American will be fun because my daughter-in-law, Tara, who, who is the book designer and um, did a lot of the photography for the book, and uh, we had a lot of fun working on that together. She uh, is American, so we want to do an American-fused dinner and I've got other friends who are Vietnamese. I think it'll be, you know, tremendous fun and it's all it's all really nutritional as well that's the other exciting thing not only do they taste great that the studies that i translated have shown 
the nutrition benefits are amazing. So foods are compared to blueberries as a back as a benchmark and so these plants have just got you know 12 20 times the antioxidants same for the vitamins and minerals um, lemon myrtle has 40 times the calcium of a blueberry so they all are sub nutritional supplements so every time you add them to your food you're getting a nice little burst of, of vitamins minerals antioxidants and antimicrobial antifungal so they keep your gut in balance that's a new thing. Well, if you want to uh, find out more, there are, as um, Julie is saying, some events coming up at the Peppermint Ridge Farm and you can find out more on their website, peppermintridgefarm.com.au and there's um, sort of information about growing these in your backyard, uh, cooking, school and um, there's also other sort of associated events around basket weaving and the like. So if you want to find out more, head to their website and, uh, and Julie's book, which is hot off the press, it's called Australian native food harvest a guide for the passionate cook and gardener and uh julie weatherhead is the author um a team effort by the sounds of it though she's from peppermint ridge farm and it's really great to have you on triple r thanks for coming in thank you so much this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au